If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In recent years, discussions about sustainability and how we can create greener, more environmentally conscious urban spaces have been at the forefront of city planning. But to what extent are these considerations new? That's one of the questions at the heart of a new book by the author Ben Wilson, which examines the historical relationship between cities and wildlife and reveals some of the lessons we can take into the present day. John Balkum recently caught up with Ben on everything from Aztec gardens to the development of London suburbia. Firstly, Ben, a big thanks for coming on the pod today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a huge pleasure. Your new book, it, it explores the relationship between nature and cities throughout human history and the ways in which people have sought to manage that relationship and will do so in the future. But before we go delving into the past, I just wondered what it was that motivated you to explore the topic and how it ties into the dilemmas we're facing today. Yeah, well, it, it, it really came out of the book I, I wrote, and which came out in the sort of dark days of lockdown, which was a book called Metropolis, which was about the human side of the city, the kind of a book that covered that great sort of span of urban history from Mesopotamia 5,000 years ago till now. And what I was looking at was the kind of dynamism, energy of cities on a very human level, but also looking at cities as very adaptable creations. And when I was kind of thinking about, you know, what was missing from that story really was something I did touch on the book, but I wanted to go into in much greater detail was the interaction between cities and ecosystems and cities as what is their place in nature and how do they adapt in the future, you know, but using that kind of long history of urbanisation and using that kind of the, the bit that's often written out, you know, we don't really think that much about nature in cities when we think about them as intensely human creations of all that kind of energy and the ideas and innovations that come from them. That There was another side that was equally important and will become much more important in the future of the climate emergency and as we adapt to, to climate change and all the, all the things that come that way. But also, what was the history of that? We see, you know, that how recent is that thing that we see these things as highly engineered human creations? There was another side to that story, which I was really kind of fascinated about sort of digging into. Indeed. And so going back in time then, when did urban planning and this conscious creation of green spaces first emerge? Well, it emerged right at the beginning, I'd say. I mean, I think the idea of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which probably weren't in Babylon, it has to be said, we're probably in Nineveh, but then we, we know them as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And what that is, is something that humans have always tried to do, which is to bring in a kind of greenery, a, a memory of past life's 
styles in a kind of much more Arcadian setting and to set them in an urban setting, which is really interesting. We have manifestations of that throughout history. And what it, I mean, in the, the kind of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon stroke Nineveh, is a way of kind of showing the power of humans and particularly rulers over nature. How can you kind of corral it into the city? So Babylon, those gardens needed to be fed by elaborate waterworks and things like that. And we find those similar manifestations throughout history. Nero, when Rome burnt down, rather than sort of rebuild chunks of the city, created what you know we what we would recognize as, as what we call a kind of whiggish kind of garden a kind of arcadian landscape again it's a fantasy landscape but cities are very good places to do that in you have throughout history and in different cultures i looked at aztec gardens as being places that connected the aztecs back to their sort of their, their very early origin stories and again they they used it as places got their gardens within cities as places where they could have trophies of conquest another sort of great example Example, and a very widespread one globally was the Mughal Gardens, which sprung up in cities from Central Asia through to um, to the Indian Ocean. These kind of great gardens that recall for the Mughals their Mongol ancestors. The, there was a sort of setting within the city which was a kind of connection back to the idea of being a kind of nomadic warrior class, although they weren't, they're very sedentary. It also, because when Babur, the emperor Babur, went to, to Afghanistan and India, he wanted to create landscapes that reminded him and his nobles of where they came from in Central Asia with flowing water, valleys, fruit trees, all these kind of things. So the garden in the city became a kind of setting, a reminder, a statement of power. We say in the similar kind of phenomenon, you find, I guess, as uh, as you get nature kind of coming into 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 European, Western European cities, again, is this kind of the a reflection of the landed elite. We kind of think about the garden squares of London, which were a kind of a reminder that power in England and Britain was landed power, was based, it wasn't commercial wealth. It was kind of creating, recreating the country estate aesthetic in the centre of a city, especially the sort of the western side of, a, of, of London and similarly in, in other cities. And again, you have this idea of an idealistic garden. It represents something about power. The parks of London are kind of inheritors of old, often in many cases, inheritors of deer parks. And they have, and they consciously kind of replicated in their winding paths, clumps of trees, wide grassland, houses like Stowe, for example, bringing that into the centres of, of cities. Uh, again, it's it's it, it's a representation of power, a kind of aesthetic. It was the, for the Whigs, who were the dominant party of the 18th century. That kind of landscape was a landscape that had a political kind of aspect to it. It was a landscape of liberty. Get rid of, you know, all the sort of formal Baroque French and Italian gardens, which represented kind of autocracy and control, and had something that looked more naturalistic, represented the English constitution as a kind of tangled, organic kind of creation rather than something that was imposed from above. And that kind of English park type with, you know, serpentine lakes, twisting paths, the clumps of trees, it is the park aesthetic that really conquered the world. You know, Central Park is based on Birkenhead Park. It was a kind of, and that that in turn was adopting the Whig aesthetic. And it's a very kind of satisfying urban landscape in a way. You have wide views. It feels like the countryside. It was intended to feel like a kind of the countryside of the imagination, of which had its origins in, in deer hunting parks and things like that. But it was brought to the city as a kind of antidote to the city, a way of kind of 
escape to create the kind of landscapes you might see in a Gainsborough painting or Poussin or something like that. It was very kind of like Nero's, if we go back to that earlier history, it was a kind of ideal of what the countryside should be, but you could kind of control it in the city. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Regarding that control, where did our obsession with suburbia come from? You know, the neat semi-detached house, the, the freshly trimmed lawn. What's its origins? Well, that sort of part of the book is really important because, you know, as cities industrialised, got different sources of power, of course, they spread and got bigger. Uh, they moved into their, their edgelands and conquered a lot of... It became much more expansive, for instance, from being dense sort of cores to expansive things. And so, of course, that has a huge impact on the environment. But that kind of idea of, of suburbia, the, the villa, was... I talked about kind of, you know, tastes... English chase going in one way to India and places like that. But they also came the other way. So I write about a, a guy called John Claudius Luden, who was a Scottish philanthropist. He was a great kind of lover of cities. He was a sort of urban planner and landscape designer. His main, so his day job was writing about gardens, landscaping. And he moved to, to Bayswater and bought a villa. And this kind of villa was kind of like the show home prototype of suburbia, which he wrote, wrote about. It was a kind of early, he wrote about it in the 1830s, so just before Queen Victoria, but it was a very, very popular global book. And it was a kind of like how to be a sub suburbanite. And key to that was the garden. And Bayswater was known at the time as, as Little Asia because it was a lot where a lot of people retired to from India. And they, they were used to living in what were called garden houses in places like Calcutta or Madras, to use their, their, their then names, where you couldn't see your neighbours from your garden because it was surrounded 
surrounded by foliage. And they took this kind of idea of you know bay windows and and all kind of the kind of the classic kind of Victorian suburban villa very often had its origins in the kind of colonial lifestyle, which was then being re-imported to London. And and, and very key to that, and, and Luden was a kind of real popularizer of plants that had come from abroad, you know, things like rhododendrons and various ivies from around Japanese plants, Indian plants. So his, his villa, which was a semi, but he made it look like it was a, a house that stood on its own. It was a kind of fantasy of a kind of English country house in, in the city. But the key to that was it was filling this garden with exotic plants fruit trees and he sort of urged that the kind of the suburban lifestyle was very much he said bound up with taking ownership of a plot of land and turning it into your own little paradise so of course that's that kind of idea of so he wasn't the first person to suburbanize but he was the first person to make it a real kind of lifestyle choice and, and write about it and become a kind of good lifestyle guru in a way with his wife growing alongside suburbia was was the the nurse what we would call the garden centre, but these nurseries in places like Sloan Square, which sort of provided seeds and plants and trees and all these kind of things for these this new kind of lifestyle. So people would say, you know, in place of our kind of native oak trees and things like that, we're coming all kinds of kind of showy exotics. And it was self-consciously suburban. You know, Luden was it wasn't a dirty term then. This for Luden it was a kind of it wasn't countryside, it wasn't city, it was a new way of living. And it was a way that kind of could be packaged and sold. And so what you get on the edge of of cities like London, but almost you know, as that that idea of suburbanisation becomes really really big, you get not just sort of bricks and mortar, which people were kind of horrified as they took over the fields and things like that, but you get a whole sort of range of species that were never seen before coming into cities and a kind of you know a real sort of rage and and desire to plant, and then that, that kind of that idea again, so English suburbia does become very popular around the world. So if you look at a city like Los Angeles, for example, that was most of the native plants that exist in, in, in Southern California have almost totally disappeared, but been replaced by plants from almost every inhabitable continent, uh, sort of stuffed in and watered and, get, and irrigated. So you get a whole sort of new ecosystem growing in suburbia, which replaces countryside, but in many cases brings in loads and loads of new species, creates sort of new spaces for nature because, because suburbia is much more expansive and when you get the kind of the growing of of cottage estates for for working people as they move from the inner city they're modeled on this kind of the idea of a garden city which the garden city never really apart from in a few cases never really happened but you have garden suburbia where you have much wider verges in sort of north london and places like that where there had been country estates and fields the hedgerow trees are kind of integrated into the the street plan and people are given gardens again as a way of getting out of that congested city where you can grow your own vegetables plant plants and they were very strict in those those council-owned cottage estates that gardens had to be well tended and people had to play keep them neat and tidy but you get a kind of you know you get you know when you fly over a city often you look down you see a very dense core but a very very green tree-lined tree-filled green kind of mixture of playing fields huge expanse of gardens 24 percent of the city is suburban gardens so these are not inconsiderable and they and they contain they were always sort of sneered at. But when ecologists started looking at it, actually, over the years, over the generations, as fashions change, you get a huge amount of exotic foliage that's brought into the city. And that's one way that, that the city's become hugely biodiverse, I think, is our sort of rage and taste for foliage, which, as I say, has, sort of, has its sort of origin point in that sort of late Regency, early Victorian time. 
definitely. And talking about transformation, there's there's also unintentional transformation. You know, I think if anyone's read a post-apocalyptic novel or been watching The Last of Us or something like that, they'll have a vague idea of what cities might look like in the absence of people, in the events of war. I mean, how are things like World War II bomb sites dealt with by planners? Well, <laughs> interestingly and very, very differently in different places. I mean, you're absolutely right. That kind of fear of what nature could do if, if we if we take our hand off the tiller, as it were. People like uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley went to the Colosseum in Rome and here was, you know, a real sort of example of, of what happens when nature takes over. The Colosseum was kind of bedecked in hundreds and hundreds of different species of spontaneous vegetation or weeds or however you want to call it. And it sort of symbolised ruin and, and, and destruction. When there were massive destruction to cities in, in Europe and Asia during the Second World War, what, what people noticed was the really, really quick reclamation of those sites by wild vegetation. It really kind of shocked people that, that, that nature could be so dynamic. And it was very heartening in a time of violence and destruction that nature could be buoyant. So when the, when the bomb sites become very quickly kind of covered in kind of the pioneer plants followed by trees and sort of more mature shrubby vegetation, people were kind of amazed by it and said, that, you know, this kind of covered up the damage. It was a sign of life and hope. They were places of play for, for kids. They were places of kind of intense sort of botanical study by people who never really kind of studied nature in cities. Suddenly here were, here were sites that could be explored and see what happens when we do take, you know, take our hand out. What kind of plants can grow amongst our very transformed landscape, which is very hard, dry, barren, a lot hotter. But there were plenty of plants. So the characteristic plant of the London bob sites is, was, it was called bombweed. It's, it's, it's really good. It's rose bay willow herb, which had never been seen really in London before. And suddenly, boom, there it is. It's growing. These sort of big pink flowers on these sort of big spiky plants. What had happened when London burnt down in 1666 and the Great Fire of London was it was covered by something called London Rocket. And the London Rocket wasn't there in the Second World War. It just didn't come back. There'd been a whole, but thanks to all the things I've been sort of talking about in a way, the, all the things that have been brought into gardens, but also technological and trade change. That a lot of seeds come into the city and packing cases, they spill out, they go on the run in the city, they find places. A lot of these are kind of plants that were adapted to kind of hard, rocky soils in, say, the Mediterranean or other places. That They found the city actually a place that they could really thrive in. So what was appearing in London in the 1940s was was a kind of reflection of London's history. All the things that had been bought by trade, things that had been bought by new technologies like railways and cars and things like that, they'd found a kind of route into the city along railway lines. They'd come in packing cases, they'd escape from gardens. There was one plant that had come in packing seas for statues that had been bought in Italian um, country houses in the 17th century. It found its way to London by the 1940s and was having a great time at this kind of time of destruction. In Berlin, there's these uh, plants started spouting in the sort of central railway station that that had come with the uh, the Ukrainian army when the Red Army came into Berlin. Uh, other seeds came with other armies. They came on with horses, which are still important in the Second World War. They came in their feed bags. They came in their dung. They came in the kind of in the turn up of people's trousers. Um, and they came they came in the tire tracks they came along railway lines and they established themselves in the city so what happens i mean often a lot of the london bomb sites are built over very very quickly a lot of that nature which was there and was sort of super interesting to people and very kind of beautiful amongst all the destruction here was this plants west berlin's really interesting because a lot of bomb sites don't get built over because because of the cold war and berlin west berlin's isolation during the cold war so two things happen you get a lot of 
sites that aren't built on. And you get a lot of people who don't have lost their contact with nature. You can't go into the countryside. You, you find your countryside in the city for the first time. Uh, in these sort of bomb sites, they're called Bracken in, in German, the fallow field. You get ecologists that study it, again, really, really scientifically for the first time. So that's where we get this kind of, the term urban ecology comes from West Berlin, as, as they kind of marvelled at the kind of the amount of stuff that could grow in the city if, if we let it. So these bomb sites became really good sort of sites to see, oh, here were plants that were, were now benefiting from the heat island effect of cities. They're much, much warmer than the surrounding countryside. And all these seeds that had come in throughout history were suddenly germinating and spreading and growing. And what, what those ecologists saw was it wasn't just bomb sites, but everywhere in the city had these kind of sites of, sort of where, you know, what was sort of seen as weeds, maybe, but, but they could grow alongside railway tracks, you know, between buildings, sort of warehouses. And then in a period of deindustrialization, as places sort of fell out of use, they became, rather than being sterile or difficult to grow on, they had a biodiversity, which was more impressive and more sort of, productive than parks and often the surrounding countryside you know the cities actually contain more biodiversity more plant species and can support a lot of bomb sites in germany in berlin supported you know 90 different species of, of bee of, of which 60 or so were, were were endangered so lots of endangered animals and lots of endangered plants were kind of finding a home in the in the city and it really kind of woke people up to the fact that there wasn't this hard and fast division between countryside and city and, and when I was looking at this, I found this really interesting. It's, it's interesting, I think, to see how these ideas develop and the circumstances, the wars, geopolitics, all these things can play a part in, in the human side of the city, but also in the natural part of the city. But what was kind of interesting was what, did, what were people's attitude to those plants before? And in the sort of medieval period, early modern period, these were sort of plants that people, the plants that grew in cities were things that people harvested for food, supplement their diet, for medicines and things like that. And actually the, the plantscape of, of, of cities, the wild, spontaneously growing thing, was, was kind of written out of history, not painted about by the sort of the painters of, of cities, but they were really important to people's lives and lifestyles. And it was really only in the sort of 19th century that there was this kind of rage to spray and rip up and and pull out kind of weeds what were seen as weeds so because they were plants that liked to grow in derelict sites they were seen as kind of sort of immoral plants in a way because they because they hung out in dodgy areas they must be dodgy plants they were kind of like sort of hobos that had hitched a ride on the train so that's that's kind of the term i'm not making that up they were terms that were were used especially in in, in north america where there were a lot of kind of invasive what were called invasive species and there was a real desire to cut down make suburbia tidier make streets look better you know all the kind of uh, american cities for example were because again, because of the war, because of packing cases and things like that, there was a lot of feral cannabis growing in, in American cities, really close to sort of federal buildings and things like that. And suddenly they became, they went from being kind of curiosities to being signs of no one cares. They look, they look dirty and, and despicable. And there were sort of big court cases fought between people as they fought back against the kind of the, the tidier uppers, the kind of fussy people that didn't like mess. They associated it with mess and pollution and wanted to, to sanitize the city in the end of the 19th, beginning, beginning of the 20th century so we get a very you know very shifting kind of landscape a very and, and that's sort of what i talked about the dynamism of the human city is reflected by the dynamism of the natural city that you get all these plants competing growing arriving dying out you know re-establishing themselves reflecting imperialism trade industry gardening you know all this is moving and changing and it's, it's as cosmopolitan dynamic and sort of volatile as the non-natural part of the city i find that found that fascinating 
we've talked about plants. I now want to talk about animals. And in the book, there's there's quite an amusing reference to that photo that went viral of a man in Berlin being chased by a, a wild boar that had stolen his laptop. I don't know whether listeners have seen that picture. I mean, that's that's a stark example of the way that in which wild animals have encroached into urban life. But does that have a precedent? Well, in, I mean, animals have been incredibly important in cities. I mean, before motorised vehicles, there were hundreds of thousands of horses in a, in a big city, pulling, carrying, transporting, and a huge amount of pigs. You know, Shepherd's Bush was well known as a kind of very loud, squealing piggery. People in early New York, people were kind of horrified by the amount of pigs and wild dogs that were roaming the streets. And they, again, like I said, with the weeds aspect, the weeds, the spontaneously growing plants, which were used for the pot, people, the poor of the city relied on a kind of the, sort of the animal side of the city as well, the kind of, you know, the roaming animals or the or their, their pets or, or domestic animals that they kind of turfed out into the street and then kind of reclaimed as, as and when. There was always been a huge amount of dogs in cities and cats and things like that, you know, for, for work, for pleasure, for pets, R- living sort of semi-feral sort of feral lifestyles of kind of being turfed out during the day and coming back at night, or at least to eat or whatever. There was also a sort of wild aspect. I mean, L- London was f- once famous for its kite population. People had never seen such a concentration of kites outside London Bridge. It was famous. They were scavenging animals. They loved the kind of midden piles, the piles of rubbish and trash and offal and things like that spewed out by the city so we should think of a, the city as a, a city as a place of huge rich abundance of of our mess which is overloading of nutrients and proteins and food and stuff like that so when that becomes the prey for the kind of animals we really don't like in cities of sort of rats and um, scavenging animals but also a lot of birds you know all those horses trooping through cities they were having to defecate i'm afraid to say and um, lots of species of birds like the seeds that they found in that. So birds like swallows and things like that, you know, they and uh, swifts, they found in cities sort of amazing um, places to roost, nest, food to eat. As we're talking about the changing shape of cities, as London suburbanises, for example, it, it becomes home to an incalculable number of starlings, which had never been seen in cities until about the end of the 19th century. They sort of hung out in Buckingham Palace, Trafalgar Square, Royal Courts of Justice, you know, they were very kind of, they lived in a very ritzy districts of London, but they were kind of like reverse commuters. They'd spend their day there in those lovely buildings with the niches and things like that they could live in and went, went out to suburbia to forage during the day. Uh, and to such an extent that the, I can't remember what year, I think it was 1949 or the early, the early 50s, the BBC News at nine o'clock had to be, uh, they had to apologise because they didn't have the bongs of Big Ben because there were so many starlings sitting on the, um, on the minute hand. Uh, that's, you know, that's again the dynamic changing part of a city is that as we change our way of life, then animals respond to it and you get the new opportunity or some opportunities arrive, some diminish. The, the fox is a fairly recent addition to, to, to English cities and then now kind of globally, or at least Europe and America. It was only about the 1930s or 40s that foxes were first spotted in cities. Why is that? Again, it's because of urban, suburbanization and the creation of different habitats. It wasn't that foxes changed their habitats. We changed our way of living and became much more expansive and suburban and provided them with lots of food and foraging opportunities till now there you know one was found as the shard was being built in london on the top floor sort of happily munching on workers picnic so you know it's, it's suburban ancestors would be very proud of it. it's conquering the the heights of the city you know with all these animals that were brought deliberately into the city 
you know, in, in, especially in a time when cities were becoming very sort of, you know, insanitary places, animals were associated with the degradation of cities. All those, you know, pigs, dairy cows that never saw the light of day, animals brought to the slaughter in, you know, in the city slaughterhouses, they became sources of pollution and again, degradation. So it's about the same time you, you find people sort of waging war on spontaneous vegetation. You find them waging war on animals as well, get them out because they're dirty. That's that sort of the idea of the myth of the kind of the alligator in the New York sewage system is the kind of our fear of what have we done to these animals by bringing them into this anthropic environment and they feast on our sewage and the worst aspects of us that they become sort of perverted themselves or dangerous dark mutated there was a similar there was the new york story before there was the new york story of alligators there was a myth of a a bunch of hogs that lived that had fallen a pregnant hog had fallen into the down a manhole cover in Hampstead, and and it had free reign of the entire had its babies and all these animals were sort of mutant hogs running around the the london um sewerage system and all the buried rivers and things like that so we, we do have these myths but we live in a time when animals are really now coming back in into the city and as cities become greener they're the boars of berlin you mentioned earlier there's more boars in berlin than there can possibly be in the countryside because they're not hunted or they're slightly culled now i believe but they've got you know huge amount of food and sort of lovely suburban sort of tree-lined places and gardens and cemeteries and playing fields to go and have a great time in and you know deers in american cities they build up huge volumes and and can kind of adapt and live amongst us so again it, i mean it's this it's that story of as, as cities change the natural world finds a way to kind of live 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 alongside us and with us and and adapt and evolve very very quickly to to, to, to become urbanized, a bit like we do in a way. You know, we kind of adapt ourselves to the city, but but animals are really, really good at it. And that's as our cities become more expansive and as we hunt and shoot a bit less and become more tolerant and leave food out maybe for birds and things like that or create corridors for animals, then their numbers are increasing, you know, and they sometimes become nuisances and they sometimes become subjects of curiosity and amazement as they develop these techniques to live alongside us. Sure. And when did people actively start trying to re-blur the boundaries then between the wild and the city? Yeah, because that's a very good way of putting it, because there grew up a very hard and fast distinction between city and, and countryside, which I say, which I think is very recent. You know, from what I've been saying, I think there was a much more porous relationship between city and countryside up until the industrial period. We're rediscovering it now because we kind of begin to see that we need nature in cities. Trees are very, very good at shading and cooling cities. They're good at soaking up carbon. We like the idea of nature in cities. We've, and, and going back to that idea of what happened in the war and post-war, that when people woke up to the fact that, that nature could, you know, not just be in the city, but thrive in the city and, and, and develop its own kind of ecosystem. That kind of knowledge, I think, kind of woke people up to the fact that it was possible to have nature in the city, but also it was very desirable. So now at a time when we're, we're facing kind of higher temperatures, flood events things like that the idea the the need for the sort of protection to create cleaner rivers you know better catchments floodable areas rougher patches in cities where there's greater biodiversity where trees can exist that 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 cool and shade us is becoming much 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 more in the political agenda to use like our ancestors did use nature used wood and trees for fuel or whatever or food uh, plants for food and such like now we're beginning to see nature as a resource again and that's that's a big big change because i think we as an urban dwelling species we thought we could sort of engineer our environment it's becoming 
becoming very clear that we can't, that we do need nature in there as a form of protection. And and, and this is where I sort of, you know, where, where I began by saying that cities are very adaptable organisms almost, where they're, they're now adapting to become much greener to, to deal with a time when the, ch- the climate's becoming much, much more unpredictable. So Singapore was a very early leader in that. But, but almost every city and, and, and town is developing some sort of strategy that involves bringing nature back. And what I wanted to show was, A, that is not a modern invention. It's sort of going back to how cities kind of used to function and had to function. But also that, that, that this environment within the city is, is interesting and, and can thrive alongside us and, and does have a history. And so his, history has that sort of importance in, in kind of waking us up to that fact of, you know that we're it's a very sort of changeable and very very interesting environment to study and to and to live live in and and to manage and manage for its maximal potential that was ben wilson his book urban jungle wilding the city is available now published by jonathan kate thanks for listening to the history extra podcast this podcast was produced by jack bateman